It's been almost six months since COVID-19 became a global pandemic, and no country has been spared from the crisis. As we now know, this is the most significant global public health threat we have faced in generations. Despite this, many nations have systematically fought the virus and have prevented it from devastating its people and communities. But what about the United States? How has the world's most powerful country dealt with the pandemic, and where do we go from here? Join me in this episode as former health commissioner of the city of Detroit, national activist and author, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed discusses his book, Healing Politics, and shares his diagnosis and prescription for how we can work together to move the health of our nation forward during this unprecedented time. Welcome to Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli, where we highlight and speak with the innovators, the game changers, and the pioneers who are deeply passionate and relentless in solving the problems our world is facing today. This is your opportunity to connect with and learn from these leaders and to support them on their mission. Perhaps they will soon be hearing your story as well. This is Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli. I look forward to having you on this journey with us. Dr. El-Sayed, thank you for taking the time to join us on our podcast today and for sharing your unique perspective regarding the coronavirus. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Well, I am so eager to discuss with you one of the epidemics within this pandemic, the social insecurities and disparities this pandemic has laid bare in front of all of us and where we need to go from here regarding COVID-19 and equally and maybe even more important beyond this current tragedy. But before we dive into all of this, Dr. El-Sayed, a bit of housekeeping While listening to any of our episodes, please make sure to join our free online community at passionatepioneers.com in order to share feedback and ideas and interact with the global ecosystem. Lastly, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast. You will automatically receive episode updates in your podcast player. Simply search Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. All right, Abdul, before we dive in and really think through some of the things, I just teed this up for our podcast today. Given that you are also an expert epidemiologist, I first like to start out by asking where we stand as a country with the pandemic. And from this perspective, where do we all need to be thinking and considering to kind of continue to open up our society, our country writ large, and where do we need to go from here? So with that, Abdul, I'll let you open it up broadly and we'll go from there. Yeah, Mike, you set it up perfectly. Where do we stand? And I would say that we stand on extremely shaky ground. And the reason why is because We are in a circumstance where what should have been a small outbreak in a different part of the world emerged as a global pandemic, in part because of the biology of the pathogen that we're dealing with, but more so because of our failure to keep up on the means of preventing an outbreak from becoming a pandemic in the first place, and that's our public health infrastructure. You know, all of us, if you're inside, you are in a room where you either have a smoke alarm in your room or next to your room. And the reason that we keep those smoke alarms there is because they alert us about small fires. And that way we can put them out when they're small. Outbreaks are the same way. You want to get them when they're outbreaks rather than when they are pandemics. And we have been operating in this country without the proverbial pandemic fire alarms, without batteries and with a fire station that's been furloughed. And that disinvestment in public health has left us battling a very serious pandemic that continues to take lives and livelihoods, tune of 165,000 and counting now. The bulwark of public health is collective action. And here, I think, 
is where we are suffering the worst. We in this country seem to be unable to come together and commit to the very basic things that are critical to stopping the virus from spreading, whether that is simply wearing a mask when you are indoors or in crowded places, or it's committing to the kind of lockdowns that allow us to very much mitigate and knock back viral spread when it is running away, or it is basic contact tracing and mounting the scale of tests that we need to take this down. And so we are facing a fall without kids going back to school regularly, without things that are as commonplace every year that they almost mark the calendar like college football. And more importantly, and most importantly, you have people who are suffering both the economic and healthcare consequences of this. The death and destruction of this virus is almost at a scale where we don't even know how to calculate it. If a plane were to fall out of the sky and crash, it would wrap our attention. But at most, that's like a thousand lives. Now imagine for 165 days straight, you had a Boeing jumbo jet falling out of the sky. Imagine what that would mean in terms of how we rethought transit. But right now, you've got that equivalent. And it seems like we have a society that has said, well, there's very little that we can do about this, despite the fact that every other high-income country in the world has figured out how to massively take down their viral transmission, save their people's lives and their livelihoods. Well, and thank you for that, Abdul. And let me devil's advocate it just for the sake of discussion here, right? One thing that I've heard from other thought leaders is, well, Asia has been there before. They've experienced pandemics before. They know how to do this. Is that a way that we should be thinking about here in our nation that, oh, we've never had it happen here. The last time we had it was in 1918 with the Spanish flu. Is that a cop out? Where do we stand in regards to our thinking and our thought process of, oh, well, they've had to deal with it before, so they know how to get ahead of it. To me, that seems hollow, but I'll let you react as the good doctor. Yeah, I'll answer that in both a technical way and also a moral way. Technically, Asia is not the only place where they have dealt with this virus effectively. So has Europe. And there hasn't been a major outbreak in Europe for a very long time. So has New Zealand and Australia. These are communities where they have not been stressed this way, but they as a society were able to come together and do the things that they needed to do to mount a real response, bring down the transmission and save a lot of lives and livelihoods. Bigger picture though, since when in the United States were we okay with excusing our failure to do something big? And this cultural question about how we think about ourselves and how we think about what we can do together is just so at odds with everything that has made this country so incredible. Right? We're not in the business of excusing our failure. We are in the business of overcoming it. And when I hear people arguing on both sides of this, right, America is this great incredible place. Oh, and by the way, there's a good reason why we're not so good at taking down this virus. But only one of those things is true. I believe in a great America. And because I believe in a great America, I believe in an America that can come together, take on this challenge and show the world how to do it. And unfortunately, right now, in large part because of failed leadership, we have shown the world how not to do it. And that's just a really sad thing for those of us who believe in America. And it should serve as a real wake-up moment about what we need to do if we are serious about an America that leads the world in technological innovation, in technical leadership, and in showing folks how things can be done when they're done excellently. Well, you know, it's also surreal, Abdul, your book, Healing Politics, A Doctor's Journey into the Heart of Our Political Epidemic, published at the end of March of 2020. 
I can imagine that you nor anyone else could have predicted this pandemic while you were writing this book. I mean, to me, I don't know about you, but that seems very surreal in following your work. I just couldn't believe the timing of when your book came out versus what we're now facing as now a world. But, you know, one area I want to focus in on, and it's a quote from your book, but let me set the stage. You know, what we're seeing right now are great disparities that are, again, as I mentioned on the front end, are laying bare right in front of us in real time black and brown communities disproportionately affected by this pandemic. We're seeing that women also very disproportionately affected by this pandemic in regards to the economic recession, right? And so when you start thinking about those and the inequities there, it leads to also this notion that you laid out in your book, this notion of insecurity. And the quote that I want to focus in on, let you take it from there is the following. You mentioned in your book, insecurity makes inclusion seem like a radical proposition, That's because insecurity thinks in a zero sum terms. It warns us that our resources are scarce, that we cannot invite others because provisions are already short. Insecurity makes necessary enemies out of potential allies. And so when you take that thought process and then you couple it up with public health, add and sprinkle on a pandemic and these incredible disparities that we're seeing and continuing to see, how does that add up or maybe does it not add up? I had no idea that we would be facing something like this that spoke so clearly to the subtext of the conversation that I was hoping that we would have around this book. And as an epidemiologist, stepping back, I'm reminded that when you want to understand an epidemic, it's not enough just to point to the pathogen. You've also got to ask questions about the host and the environment. And what I tried to do with this book is to explain how our environment has been beating up on the hosts all of us, but many of us and some of us in particular over time that has created the pathway that this particular pathogen is now walking through. And if you look at where we are as a society and part of the reason why we are unable to invest in this collective action, it is because we are so anxious about our futures because we have watched the systems that have delivered us the basic means of a dignified life crumble over the past 30 to 40 years, in large part because we have allowed those systems to be profiteered on by very large corporate actors. And our experiences are that of loss. And that means then that it is very, very difficult for us to overcome the fear of what more could be lost If and when the only answer to a challenge is to lock arms and believe in what we can do together. And so, you know, this pandemic is the perfect test case, unfortunately, for whether or not in our society, under these circumstances, we are able to mount a collective response to a challenge that all of us face in differing ways. And not only that, but it has formed the tinder that this particular virus is now burning through the poverty, the inequality the lack of access to basic things like healthcare or well-fortified schooling. All of these are the subtext for all of the conversations that we are having about the loss of lives, the loss of livelihoods, the decision to send our kids back to school, how it is that we invest in local and state governments that have been forced to bear the brunt of their response in an effect an unfunded mandate from the federal government because the federal government just isn't mounting one. All of this, right, speaks to this low underlying chronic insecurity that I think is framing so much of our public conversation without us being able to see it or talk about it. And so in so many ways, the pandemic is a technical problem, right? We need to know more about the virus. We need to know about how it spreads. We need to know about how to stop it. 
but it's also a cultural problem about whether or not we as a society are willing to invest in one another to take this thing down. And I think if you want to understand the difference between how we have failed to handle this pandemic and other countries have succeeded, it's not as much about the technical questions, right? Those technical answers are there for everyone. It's about whether or not we were able to mount a cultural response based on what we understood. And here is the big difference. And it is a really scary thing when you think about what it portends for not just this pandemic in the course of it, but also our future and our ability to be the United States of America in the ways that we have been in the past. Well, and let's stay there for a moment, Abdul. You mentioned the cultural ramifications and through your body of work and your national leadership position, you are also known as a social epidemiologist. And in your academic work, you focus obviously on health inequality, but you've also had a lot of focus around the notion of systems and how so many things are interconnected. And here you were, Abdul, age 30, you became the youngest city health official in America tasked with rebuilding Detroit's health department after years of austerity policies. And I want to get your opinion on taking it back to that time with your work at Detroit and then leading up to today. Kind of did you see it coming? And what do I mean by that? I recently read Thomas Friedman's book, Thank You for Being Late. And while that was published in 2016, it was unbelievable how the book was really coming to life in this current crisis where he's discussing the acceleration of technology and innovation, geopolitical unrest and climate change, all accelerating at the same exact time in the moment of history of where we are today. And just reading that and then, of course, not knowing that a pandemic was coming when Thomas was writing this book, just how relevant it is today on so many different fronts, economically, socially, culturally and otherwise. So with that, Abdul, when you think back to your time in your career and leading up to where you are today as a national thought leader and some of your work around how systems are so interconnected, what does that mean? Did you see it coming? Did you know that something like this was going to happen and that the ramifications thereof were also going to be true? If you see a stack of dry firewood and you see it building and building, you know that that could be a real risk if the right spark was to hit at the right moment. But then because the spark is never really hit and it's been so long, you kind of assume, well, maybe there is some logic to this. And unfortunately, when you look at our social inequalities in this country, they are like that stack of firewood. And while everyone could say this is a real risk for becoming an inferno, we had become so inured to it because, of course, this is just the way it is. And so I can't say that I saw a particular pandemic coming, but I think there was a real consensus in the public health community that a pandemic like this was in the offing and that it would be a real challenge considering where we were as a society. And yet, because it had not happened and because we rested on our laurels about the strength of our public health infrastructure, despite the fact that it had been cut and cut and cut, nobody could see this particular one coming. And so all of the building blocks were there. All of the tinder was waiting to be burnt, but it was like we'd gotten so used to it. And because the alarm of this had become something that all of us would look at every single day, it was really easy for us to ignore. And yet, now that it has happened, it is also easy to explain. And that's the frustrating part, is that we as a society, a forward-thinking society, we cannot rest on the laurels of our past 
particularly given the fact that our past has been pretty unequal and built on some really, really problematic foundations. And if we're serious about our future, then we cannot allow the systems that continue to stack these pieces of Tinder higher and higher and higher to continue forward. And this is how these things get connected, right? Is that when we think about systems, it's easy to focus on stocks and flows, but it actually on stocks and how much of something you have, it's less easy to focus on the flows. How did those things get there? And so much of what I tried to do in the book is to explain how our systems have been corrupted by this late stage corporate driven kind of capitalism that itself is anathema to American ideals. It is fundamentally inequitable and it drives down innovation. But what it does drive is deep and profound inequality. It drives exclusion of very basic resources like housing and healthcare for a large swath of people. And it creates the circumstances within which a shock like a coronavirus outbreak then become a raging pandemic without the means of solving them. And so those kinds of connections, they're easy to show in hindsight. Our job moving forward is to be able to see them coming and to rethink those flows so that we are never in this circumstance again. Well, let's stay there for a moment, Abdul. So I'm very fortunate on my day-to-day, right? I'm not a full-time podcaster, but during my day-to-day and working in technology and innovation to really help reimagine healthcare through that lens, I'm fortunate to be at the table with organizations like XPRIZE and HeroX and GHC3 down in Atlanta and thinking through, you know, how do we solve for these big audacious problems through technology and through innovation? From your perspective though, Abdul, what I'm hearing out there from leaders like you and across the nation and world is really COVID-19 is a dress rehearsal. This is our time to start getting our house in order because these types of crises will inevitably happen again and potentially even be far worse than what we're experiencing today, which is completely unimaginable from my perspective, given how crazy the world is with this. So with that, Abdul, we have amazing leaders listening in, both from what, as I mentioned, is the incumbent side, the established healthcare industry, this $3 trillion industry that is within the United States and growing, both on the public and private side of the aisle. And we have amazing entrepreneurs and startups that are really working to bring new creative ideas, technologies, and processes to the industry writ large. With that kind of stage set, Abdul, what are, from your perspective, one to three things those stakeholders should be thinking about to prepare us for the future, to think anew, to really put us on a new track, to think about the health of our nation, maybe not even just within the lens of a pandemic, but just moving forward more broadly, both from, again, the entrepreneur's perspective and the incumbent stakeholder's perspective. What are one to three things that we should be thinking about? I'll do my best to offer three, Mike. The first is that health is not just a technical question. It is also a social and cultural question. And we are seeing that today. And if and when our culture fails to allow us to mount a collective response to a real challenge like this pandemic, then we have to turn our eyes to asking A, how do we address the failure of our culture right now? And B, what was the system that created it? And that, ironically enough, is actually in part a technical question because so much of the division that we have seen that has completely disrupted our ability toward collective action is actually our failure to appreciate what the consequences of social media and the way that it is played in the hands of maleficent actors 
has been. And in a lot of ways, a lot of the misinformation, the conspiracy theories, or just algorithmic sorting so that we're never actually hearing opinions that are different than ours, that has created and driven a lot of the polarization that we see today. And so in some respects, like if we're serious about trying to solve these big picture healthcare problems, the second point is that we've got to be willing to go back to some of the technical solves for problems that we thought were unrelated to healthcare and ask, how do we fix this? And how do we get serious about fixing this? And in part, that is a technical problem, but it also feeds forward into this chicken and egg problem with the cultural problem. And so that's number two. And then the third thing I'll say is that public goods have to be and have to stay public. And we cannot forget, right, that there are some things that society has to make a decision to solve that should not be put behind the profit motive that tends to drive a lot of our innovation. And I would love to see public-spirited entrepreneurs and technologists really be asking, how do we empower the public space to be as robust and as effective as it possibly can be, even if there is not so much money on the back end of it? And the challenge with always thinking about what the payoff to our innovation and our technical prowess might be is that by definition, a payoff, it requires exclusion. It requires putting something behind a paywall. And what then happens in terms of the consequences for our societal inequality, if and when we do that? And so my hope is that technologists will take this moment and step back and realize that we have to be invested in the public space and the public well-being, independent of the payoff that it provides us if we're serious about protecting the system that exists to ensure that we can continue to do good work and that that good work is going to provide for everyone and that we are serious about going back and asking what are the connections that we didn't see with the technologies that we've created and what are the consequences that they have for our health considering the fact that health is not just a technical problem. It is also a social and cultural and political one. Well, thank you for that, Abdul. And as we start winding down to our community, This was very intentional to bring Dr. El-Sayed on. As Senator Bernie Sanders recently said of Abdul, he's one of the brightest young stars in the future of the progressive movement. I know that some of our community will passionately disagree with some of the things that Abdul shared. That is exactly the point why we're here today. We're not going to continue to listen and speak into a vacuum. We need to start working together on all sides of this as a nation to start figuring this out, to move the health of our country forward by doing it together. We as a country over 50 years ago, put a man on the moon by doing it together. We are now staring down one of those opportune times to do something big, bold, and audacious, but we have to come together on all sides of the aisle. And this is exactly why I wanted Abdul to be here with us today, to challenge some of our ideas, to have us think anew and think creatively and think together and bring those ideas forward so we can continue to move forward together. And so with that, head over to passionatepioneers.com, our free global online community. There will be an article posted about this conversation today. Don't be shy. Leave some comments, ask some questions, share some of your ideas, challenge some of the things that we both shared today, and also build on some of the ones that Abdul laid out for us so eloquently and all the things that he shared with us. So with that, Abdul, this was incredible. Thank you for your incredible work. More importantly, thank you for your leadership and your passion to continue to move our nation forward and bringing everybody together around the table. Before we sign off, Abdul, where are some points online that we can find you? I know you have your new book, Healing Politics, A Doctor's Journey into the Heart of Our Political Epidemic. But where are some contact points online that we can find you? 
Absolutely. First and foremost, Mike, I just want to say thank you for being so purposive about how you leverage your platform and your leadership. If folks are interested in the book, they can go to healingpoliticsbook.com. And then my website is abdulalsayed.com, no dash. And I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Abdul Al-Sayed and on Facebook at Abdul from Michigan. So I hope folks will go there. I hope to continue to build on this conversation. And again, really appreciate the opportunity to be with you and the intentionality and thought that you put into how you leverage this platform. Well, it is my pleasure and honor as well. And to our community, all of those contact points that Dr. El-Sayed shared will be in our episode notes, as well as over at our free global online community, passionatepioneers.com. Well, as we start signing off here, Abdul, again, thank you so much. Keep us posted. Keep us up to date of what you're seeing, what you're experiencing, the things that we need to consider as this is moving rapidly. Our worlds are changing by the week. And so know that this community is behind you. We look forward to continuing to collaborate and learn from you and from one another. But again, thank you for being with us today. My privilege. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for joining us today on Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli. We'd love to hear your feedback about the podcast so we can continue to improve this community and to further support the pioneers being featured. Lastly, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast and invite your friends and colleagues to join us. This is Passionate Pioneers with Mike Baselli. I look forward to having you back with us during our next episode.